morning we're going to be in John chapter 13. Um, actually, in hindsight, I mean, it's another, another one of the great examples of God's providence being wiser than we are. It's a great text for us to be in on this day when we're celebrating four years and looking ahead to the next year. Because in this text, John's taking a turn from what he has been doing in the first 12 chapters that we've already looked at together this year, where he's kind of introducing us to Jesus and the amazing things that he did, the amazing things that he said, and the way that Jesus was pointing ahead to what he came here to do. He's taking a turn now in chapter 13 to Jesus telling his followers what it's going to look like for them to follow him well after he's gone. And especially what he's trying to do is introduce them to what it will look like for them to treat each other in a way that represents Jesus faithfully. Because one of the things that the New Testament is consistent on all the way through it, and that comes through crystal clear in this text, is that the way we love each other is the the way that we show what Jesus is like. That he's left us here to represent him to the people who all around us who don't know what he's like by the way that we care for each other. We're going to be looking at at this in detail in the next few weeks as we look at chapters 13 through chapter 17. But we started out today with one of the great opening lines in in this book. John was a great writer. I mean, he he had a great sense of of how to set the stage in ways that are subtle. You know, like a great novelist are often able to, to begin a, a chapter, or a, new, a new phase of their story, or even the entire novel with a sentence that captures what's coming, that points ahead to it, that sort of sums it up. Think about uh, Dickens and Tale of Two Cities with the, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times line. John gives us one that's a lot like that in chapter 13, verse 1. He says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's a lot in that verse. He starts, he sets the scene for us with the reference to Passover. We've seen this a couple times already in John. This is your first time visiting with us today. Let me go ahead and tell you. John never makes mistakes, never gives us random details when he talks about feasts. He's used the feasts of the Jews to to help highlight what it is that that Christ came to do. That Jesus understands his own ministry in light of how it fits in with what Israel had already done, what they'd already experienced, what they'd already been taught to expect. The Passover has already come up a couple times, and each time that Passover has come up, it's been used as a a signpost to what Jesus came to do as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The first Passover that John showed us was back in chapter 2. And it had Jesus entering the temple, clearing out the place that God met with his people from all those who had exploited it, who had turned it into a den of robbers, and telling people that what he's doing is more, more than meets the eye here. It's not just about getting this corruption out of the temple. It's also about him taking the place of that temple saying that I will destroy this place in three days and, then, and three days later we'll raise it up again. Talking about his body as, the, as something that would be given up on the cross, that would be raised again to new life, and that in this body, in what he offers through it, we would be able to meet with God. That was back in chapter 2. Chapter 6 was the second Passover that he mentioned. And chapter 6 is where Jesus says, it's this, this, this discourse that's known as the bread of life discourse, where he talks about his own body as something that his followers have to eat, that they have to feast on him to take who he is and what he's done into their being. 
that only those who eat his flesh and drink his blood will have a share in him. That was the second Passover. It's a clear reference to his death, his life and death given for the people that he loved. And now a third Passover. John points ahead. He sets the stage for this story he's about to tell us as something that's tied in with what he's already done every time Passover has happened. This was just before the feast of Passover. There's a second brushstroke here. Jesus knew that his hour had come. We've been seeing references to his hour all through the first 12 chapters. And, and before now, when he talks about his hour, he talks about it as something that's not yet. His hour had not yet come. He can't do what he's being asked to do because the hour isn't here yet. And now we're seeing the hour has come. Once again, the thing that he came here to do with his life and his death is upon him. We're supposed to read this story and everything in the next few chapters in light of that. And then finally, this amazing statement that he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. It's a statement that raises a question. How? How has he loved them? How has he loved us? This question matters to us this morning, not just because of what he offers us, but because his love for us sets the pattern for our love for each other. That's a point that's going to come out today, and it's going to come out again and again as we study the next few chapters. So what we want to do as we unpack this first story about Jesus interacting with his followers just before he died, knowing that everything the book has been, built, has been building towards is coming now, at Passover, as the hour has come, as Jesus loves him to the end, what we want to do is see, what does his love look like? This love with which he loved them to the end. And how does his love for his friends teach us to love each other? This morning, the way that question, those questions get answered is all about service. We want to, here's a simple point, all right? The two parts to this message this morning, it's going to make a really simple point. Jesus serves us. So we serve each other. There, there it is. Jesus serves us, so we serve each other. Well, how has Jesus served us? How are we supposed to serve each other? That's what we want to unpack this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 to 20 of John chapter 13. And while I do that, I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, 
you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. And he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to start with what John starts with, and that is this picture of Jesus as a servant. We want to understand how Jesus serves us. And I think the best way to do this is to unpack it in a couple steps. I think we can see the full picture that we're meant to see here if we, if we break it apart and ask how Jesus serves, what it is that he does to serve, and then also look at whom Jesus serves, how Jesus serves and whom Jesus serves. And as we do that, as we break it down into those two steps, we're also going to be pulling back a couple different layers. Now, this is getting a little bit complicated here, okay? So two steps, how Jesus serves, whom Jesus serves. But then, just like we've seen John do many other times in this book, we know that he often tells us stories that are operating on a couple of different layers. That there is this sort of physical, in-the-moment thing that he's telling us about. And then there's the, the second layer, the, the spiritual layer, the sign, uh, the, 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 the signified of, of, the, of the event, something about what Jesus has come to do that's bigger than the, than the physical thing he's doing that moment. Think back to, to when he fed 5,000 people, for example. Well, for one thing, that just shows he's got this amazing power over the natural world. Jesus can take a boy's snack and turn it into a meal for 5,000. That's incredible. But it's more than just incredible. John then used it to talk about Jesus giving of his own self as food for his people. Two different layers, right? Same two layers that we're going to see unpacked here in this story of foot washing. So as we look at how he served, we're going to look at it in two steps, as, as, as what he actually did in washing the disciples' feet, understanding why this shocking picture carries such a punch. But then we're going to also look at the second layer of, of what his washing points to, something deeper than just washing dirt off of feet, something, something that could only happen through Jesus' death. Let's start with how... Jesus serves. This is the first layer. And this, the message of it is simple. How does Jesus serve? Well, Jesus serves by doing anything. Jesus will do anything. 
There is nothing he's unwilling to do. This gets set up by an amazing contrast. I wonder if you notice this. Verses 3 through 5. There's a huge contrast between verse 3 and then what happens in verses 4 and 5. Verse 3 reads like, kind, of, kind of like a resume. Look at it. Jesus knows that the Father has given him all power. He's given all things into his hands. He's in charge. Everything has been entrusted to him. The world is his. He came from God. That's where he belongs. He's going back to God to resume his rightful place. On the throne of the universe where everything exists for him. It's a resume. And it's a great one, no? Now, knowing all these things about Jesus, that this is Jesus' resume, therefore, verse 4, what would you expect? Therefore, all of the disciples worshipped him. They put him on a throne, the brilliance of which was unmatched in all the ancient world. They brought to him the best of everything that they had and laid it down at his feet. They always gave him the position of honor anywhere that they went. Those are the kinds of things you'd expect, right? Therefore, because all things had been given to him, because he came from God and was going back to God, Jesus rose up from supper. He laid aside what was already a humble outer garment. He takes up a towel, wraps it around his waist, pours water into a basin, takes the filthy feet of his disciples into his own divine hands, and he washes them. Try to imagine hearing this for the first time. Try to imagine that you didn't grow up hearing it if you grew up in a Christian family. Try to imagine the shock of verse 3 compared to verse 4. Maybe in our context, you can imagine it a little better. If you think about a president's son, right? U.S. president's son, who has everything provided to him that any child could ever want, and who makes good on the things that were provided to him. All of his opportunities he takes and invests himself in. Goes to the best prep schools in the country. Graduates summa cum laude from Yale. Wins a Fulbright Fellowship before breezing through Harvard Law with honors. Clerks for a Supreme Court Justice. Takes a, a job at a prestigious D.C. firm. And therefore, therefore, with all of these qualifications, he has his driver pull over at a truck stop. He grabs a little yellow rolling cart with a nasty mop attached to it, pulls a scrub brush from it, enters the truck stop bathroom, gets down on his hands and knees, and scrubs each and every toilet in that bathroom. Nothing prepares us, nothing prepares us from this setup in in verse 3 for the action Jesus takes in verses 4 and 5. Foot washing in the ancient world, it had to happen. It had to happen because feet were uncovered. They were walking around all these dusty, nasty streets. Their only mode of transportation, right, was their feet. They would walk through the dust and the mud and the filth. And let's be honest, I mean, feet are always disgusting, right? Your feet are disgusting. And you probably take pretty good care of them. 
first century feet are almost unimaginable. And that's why scholars say it was, it, that's why it, it was unthinkable even for one peer to wash another peer's feet. And not only was it unthinkable for that, for peer to peer to wash each other's feet, but there's some record that, that some Jews during this time thought that it was even wrong for a Jewish slave to wash someone else's feet. That, that foot washing should be reserved for Gentile slaves and for women. Sorry, ladies. I had to throw that in there. But Jesus is not like us, right? Jesus is not like us. All things are made by him. All things are made for him. All things are now given to him. But nothing was beneath him. Nothing was beneath him. You would, at best, you could expect that such a one, best case scenario, one with his power and authority, you would expect them to maybe provide for the foot washing of his disciples. That maybe he would shell out the cash to hire the Gentile slave to come and do it, right? At his time and position, he could better serve them that way, right? His time would be better used. His resources better allocated if he paid for it or had some angel come down and do it, right? Surely his time was too valuable. His attention and his skill would be better used if he, if he did something else. But Jesus had to do it. He had to do it to make the point that he came to make. That there was nothing he would not do to serve the ones that he loved. And he loved them to the end. That's one layer to how Jesus serves us. That's the layer that's very on the surface, right? The actual physical thing that happened. And it carries a huge punch. But there's another layer, a second layer. I, I bet it came out a little bit, even, even as you read through it the first time when I was reading it earlier. There's another layer to how Jesus serves. We were prepped to see it in verse 1. I've already mentioned this. This was Passover time. In John, that always is a clue. Watch out. Watch what Jesus says and does around Passover because it's packed with meaning and there's more to it than meets the eye. We were prepped for it in verse 1. Verse 6 takes us a little bit further in because that's where Peter pushes back on Jesus. Peter's always the impetuous one, right? Peter is the, for, for Peter, just go ahead and insert your favorite cliche for a guy who just can't control himself, who's, who's sincere but unstable, right? That's Peter. Maybe the, uh, maybe the others that Jesus, as he'd been coming around and washing them, were too shocked to say anything. But Peter will not sit there and take it. He is going to address the issue that's going on and make sure that the right thing gets done. That's his M.O. He's not just going to sit there. So he cries out, Lord, you wash my feet? Jesus tells him, you don't understand it now. There's more here than meets the eye. Later on, you'll understand what I'm doing for you. Still, he doesn't get it. You will never wash my feet. And Jesus lays it on the line at that point. Peter, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. More going on here than meets the eye. It isn't just about Peter's nasty toes. Something else comes through even more in the next verses. Peter, with his natural, impetuous self, goes all the way to the other side. Okay, then just dump water all over me. Jesus, uh, Jesus uses it to t- take the image into a slightly different direction. 
He's done this before. I mean, back when he's talking about sheep and shepherds and gates and doors, and he sort of used the analogy differently, even in the space of a few different verses. Now I think he's taking another turn here. And he's talking about what he's doing for them. On the whole, I, when I make you clean, you don't have to wash. You may, need to, you may need to sort of repent of your sins and appeal to me for cleansing again, forgiveness, repentance, as, as, the, as each day brings new opportunities for you to, to drift from me, right? Maybe the feet stand in for that ongoing struggle with sin, but ultimately, fundamentally, when I cleaned you, you're clean. Jesus is picturing something for us. He's almost giving us a parable here of what he came to do for all who look to him, of how he came to serve his friends. He came to wash them clean. He came to do it once and for all. Now it's clear, I hope, he's talking about more than just washed feet. He's pointing to a deeper cleansing of the soul, something, something that his Passover death, something that this Passover, that this hour had brought to pass, something that that death would do for all who look to him once and for all. In that sense, I think, I think what we see here when Jesus serves in this way is exactly what Paul is riffing on in one of his letters. His letter to the Philippians in chapter 2 of that letter. It almost reads like a spiritualization of this story. It starts out about service. He's calling on people to, to be kind to each other, to quit trying to one-up each other, to always look to their own interests and their own needs and to give themselves to each other. And he says, do this like, like Jesus did. Have this mind in yourself, which was also in him. And then what does he say? He says, he was in the form of God. He had all the glory that God himself has as God. And he emptied himself. What did he do? He took off his garment and laid it aside, just like John 13. He emptied himself and became obedient. He humbled himself all the way to the cross, to the most shameful death imaginable in that world. He served in love to the end. The story also reminds me of Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, what what Jesus is picturing here is what he offers to you right now where you sit. There is nothing that you have done that Jesus can't wash clean. There is nothing you need that is beneath Jesus' willingness to serve you. And if you trust in him, he will make you clean. I think this comes out even better in the next step we want to take. We've unpacked what it is that Jesus serves us by looking at how he serves, both the physical thing itself and the thing that that physical act of washing points to. And, and now we want to look at not just how he serves, but whom he serves, because there is much, there is much for our encouragement in it. Uh, I, want to, I want to unpack whom he serves on those same two layers. There's something that, the, that this spiritual layer of Jesus' act points us towards. I want to start there. Jesus serves through his death anyone and everyone who will ever have anything to do with him. I think that's what comes out in his conversation with Peter. That if you want to attach to Jesus, if you want to have any hope in life and in death, you've got to let Jesus serve you. If you refuse to be served by Jesus, if you would rather be 
responsible for and take credit for your own recovery story, then Jesus isn't for you. Jesus insists that if, unless Peter lets him wash him, that he has no share with him. Peter's response to Jesus there, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a little bit comical, right? That the, you will never wash my feet and now just pour the water all over me. Wash not just my, my feet, but my hands and my head. But there's also something in it that rings true. Peter, especially his unwillingness to be served by Jesus. What rings true in that story where we can identify with Peter there, I think is in an instinct that all of us have that will keep us from Jesus if we don't lay it aside. What Peter's showing there, this resistance, it's a resistance to being served that on the surface looks humble. Because he's saying, you're too good to do that for me. But underneath is actually rooted in pride. A pride that says, I don't want anything I don't deserve. You see that? On the surface, it looks like Peter is humble. And maybe in your shame over what you've done and your doubt that Christ can handle it, you look like someone who's given to despair, someone who, does, who hates themselves. But friends, underneath it all could be a pride where you're, what you're really saying is that you don't want anything that you don't have coming to you. What Peter had to learn here was that grace... The grace apart from which no one will live is always undeserved. It always means a service that is too good for you, but that Jesus is willing to give you. Are you only willing to be served by those who owe you? I'm guessing Peter would have taken, he would have, he he wasn't, he wasn't, I don't think, put off by the idea of foot washing. He would have taken it from a slave. He would have taken it from someone who was indebted to him, but he wouldn't take it from Jesus. Because Jesus washing his feet turns the whole system upside down. But that's how his grace works. And no one is with Jesus. No one is with him. Unless they're willing to be served by him. But when he serves you, when Jesus serves you, you will be completely clean. There's one more, one more observation I want to pull out of this on whom Jesus serves. This one comes not from that spiritual layer of Jesus serving us by his own death that washes us clean, but from the, just the raw, physical, shocking thing that Jesus did in washing feet. Something that came out to me in looking over the text, thinking about it this week, that I hadn't really noticed and thought much about before. It comes out in, G- in John's repeated reference to Judas. Did you notice this when we were reading through it that time? At, at, several, at several places through this story, John keeps going back to the fact that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, one of Jesus' most beloved friends, was sitting there the whole time. He was receiving what Jesus was doing all the while having it in his heart to betray Jesus and make sure Jesus died. Goes back to it at the very end of the passage. Jesus makes it clear that he's not, when he talks about people being made clean, he's not talking about all of them. That there is one there 
who isn't clean in that spiritual sense we've been talking about, who hasn't been attached to Jesus and Jesus' death that wipes away all sin. There's one there who doesn't apply. It's Judas. You can imagine why John would be so fixated on Judas. This was his buddy. They spent years together. Imagine the conversations that they must have had walking with Jesus all over the country. Imagine what they would talk about over dinner. They spent all day, every day for years together. Judas' betrayal had made an impression on John that he probably never outlived. What must Jesus have shared with this man in their intimate moments? What they had was a commitment to each other. They had an understanding. This is what makes betrayal so devastating, isn't it? I know some of you have been betrayed. Isn't that what makes it so devastating? That we're, we're, in a, we're an attack may come from one that you know, with whom you know where you stand. Betrayal is always an act that implies intimacy and trust. It implies a relationship in which you think you're getting one thing and end up getting another. It implies a broken commitment. And that's why it wounds so deeply. Judas was one of these betrayers. And Jesus knew it. That comes through a couple different times. Jesus knew who his betrayer was. And Jesus washed his feet. Judas may not have been served by Jesus' death. But it is shocking that the Son of God laid aside his garments and washed the filthy feet of a man who would have him killed. That he knew who would betray him and he loved him to the end. How much encouragement for us who do look to him. For those of us who look to his deep spiritual soul cleansing. But who know from everyday experience that there isn't a day that goes by that we don't betray him. That we don't love the things of this world more than we love him. That we don't hear of his promises or read from his word with hearts that are cold and unmoved. That we don't distrust him in our fear and anxiety despite his promises to us and his fulfillment of his promises over and over again. He just keeps delivering and we keep on doubting. How is that not betrayal? But Jesus came as the one who loved the world, who loves those who run from him, who gives himself from those who abandon him, who loved to the end, even the man who betrayed him. That's how Jesus serves. That's how Jesus serves. And because Jesus serves us, we serve each other. What does that look like? 
That's where Jesus turns in the next paragraph, verses 12 to 20. Here in these verses, Jesus does something that Paul does in most of his letters that most of the New Testament guys do. What they do is they give us a good, clear picture of the beauty of Jesus. Here is who he is. Just look at it and be moved and stirred up and, and assured. Find rest in this beauty of what he's come to offer you. Look at Jesus. Now, looking at Jesus, look at each other. And look at each other differently because of him. Remember the setup in verse 3 here in, in chapter 13? God has given him all things. He is king. Then look at the end, verse 20. In verse 20, what it seems like he's doing is saying that the, the one who receives the one I send receives me. That now, as he's about to leave this world, he makes his followers his representatives. They stand for the king. They're his delegates, his ambassadors. You're going to re- represent me to all who will receive you. So what does it look like to represent this king? We know how people in our day, the rulers of this world, are represented. They're represented in opulence, right? In symbols of power. They're represented by people whose goal is to be impressive. Because when the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. shows up, he needs to to look like he comes from a place that's serious. From a place that's got to be respected. He comes in one of those fancy cars with the little flags on the front, right? He's dressed to the nines. He gets a special place to sit with his name on it and his flag in front of it. So when we represent Jesus, this king, the king of the whole world, what are we supposed to look like? That's a high position. You'd expect deference, wouldn't you? Jesus points us in another direction. After he'd washed their feet, verse 12 says, he put back on his his garments, sits back in his place, and says, do you get it? Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, titles of immense respect, and you're right. You haven't missed it. I am your teacher. I am the teacher. I'm the one that your whole history has been waiting for. I speak for God. Everything he sent me to say. And I am Lord. Not just your master. I am the Lord. You're right. But if I, your teacher and your Lord, if I put aside my garments and I wash your grubby feet, how much more? should you be willing to wash each other's feet? And what we've seen from Jesus is this. What we've seen from Jesus is that there is nothing he's unwilling to do. There's nothing beneath him. If there's a need there, he will meet it. And that there is no one he's unwilling to serve. And if we are going to represent him, if we, in the verse 20 sense, are those who are sent out by him, if those who receive us may as well be receiving him because we stand for him. Then how do we represent him? What does it look like? What impression do we give? There is nothing we won't do for each other. And there is no one that we're unwilling to serve. Because a servant 
is not greater than his master. That's what I'm praying will be a mantra in our church. What if we just wrote that on some sort of sticky note, stuck it to our fridge, to our car dashboard, to your computer where you write your emails, maybe had it on your wallpaper, on your phone where you're tempted to send texts that maybe aren't appropriate to people who've done you wrong. A servant is not greater than his master. Therefore, first of all, there is nothing we won't do for each other. There's a kind of service that builds up the servant, right? I mean, we know this. There's a kind of service that you can do that makes you look better. And all of us are attracted to that at some point. All of us are attracted to, to sort of service that comes with a nice hashtag or bumper sticker. But the kind of service Jesus has modeled here is the kind of service that doesn't do anyone any good. Here's the way one put it. This kind of leadership, this kind of service is known by the ease and spontaneity with which he or she does the little, annoying, messy things. I like this even better. The things which, in our world, we always secretly hope someone else will do so that we won't have to waste our time or demean ourselves. You know what he's talking about, right? Those things that you would never admit are beneath you, but that you're always wishing, hoping someone else will see and do. It's a beautiful thing to, say, build a home for somebody who doesn't have one, right? There are these big, well-marketed service opportunities, and they're wonderful, right? Go build somebody a house, absolutely. But it's a uniquely Christian thing to recognize the person that no one else wants to engage and to go and sit with them, to eat with them. I have a pastor friend who I heard say, heard him say a couple of times, a line that he's used with, with uh, young, eager guys in his church, especially the ones who are, who are maybe really invested in theology, who are very knowledgeable. Here's the gist of it. You guys may, you may know the Bible in its original languages. Maybe you can even read straight out of the Greek New Testament. You may be able to parse out the differences between medieval Catholics and the early church fathers on the nature of Jesus' work for us. You may be able to back an atheist into a corner that he can't escape. But if you're not willing to get up earlier to give an elderly man a ride to church, I don't know if you're really a Christian. Following Jesus means loving to the end. And loving to the end means serving each other as he has served us. And there was nothing that was beneath our teacher and our Lord. So there is nothing that we won't do for each other. I want to say just before I go, go on here, one of the things I love about our church, one of the things that's been most rewarding to me this first four years is watching you guys do this. All the hours in childcare over the last four years. Great attitudes. Minimal complaining. Set up at 7.30 on a Sunday morning when no one sees you putting these chairs in line. They're just here. When I show up in the morning, here they are. It's because of you doing a thankless job. No one sees. You serve like your master did. There are examples all up and down the life of our church. I love you guys for it. Thank you for serving like Jesus served. Let's do it more. 
The next time you feel like something's beneath you. The next time you recognize someone's got a need that you could meet, but that will cost you. Remember that the servant is not greater than his master. If we serve like Jesus served us, there's nothing we won't do. And there's no one we won't serve. Just as there are some acts of service that are easy to do because they come with some sort of notoriety, there's also some people that are really easy to serve, right? There's some people that I almost like to hear that they have a need because it makes me so happy and joyful to be able to meet it. I'm just looking for it, right? It's easy. Some people we love and admire and respect and get along great with, and, it, and, and when we hear of their needs, we're on it. And that's a beautiful thing. We should do that. But our Lord and teacher knew who his betrayer was and he washed his feet. Who are we unwilling to serve? Maybe, friends, maybe the best way for you to apply this part of the text to yourself going out of here this week is to think, I mean, think honestly and prayerfully about who there is in your circle or who there is that you interfere interface with at all that is difficult for you to love and ask yourself honestly what can I do this week to serve them what need can I identify in them that I can target maybe they're socially awkward that's why it's hard to love them maybe they're not the sort of person that the people you admire want to engage with maybe they seem entitled like They deserve service from other people, and that shuts you down. Maybe their needs are their own fault. Maybe you feel trapped in your relationship with them. Maybe they've even betrayed you. But friends, it doesn't matter who they are. The servant is not greater than his master. Jesus knew his betrayer, and he washed his feet. So there is no one that we are unwilling to serve. This sort of service is supernatural, isn't it? Who of us is up to this? The master who sets us an example also gives us his power to go and do likewise. So we're going to pray now for that power. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for Jesus who shows us so clearly what you are like, who pictures your beauty unlike anything else in our experience, and who calls us so clearly to come and be with him, not to earn our space, but to be washed by him, and then to draw from him as we serve like he served us. Thank you for making him our great resource, not just our great example. And help us now by his power, by your spirit that works in us, that points us to him, that stirs up love and affection for him. By this spirit, make us like him. We pray for your name's sake. Amen.